You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. I'm JR, and this is the follow-up podcast to the Target Books rundown of a couple of weeks ago. And as such, I will be interviewing two people about their books about Target Books that are out this year. Coming up in probably about an hour's time, I'll be talking to Christopher Bryant about You on Target. Oh, and actually, as Doctor Who fans love lists, we'll be counting down Chris's top ten Target Books. But that's coming up in about an hour. Prior to that, I shall be talking to, well, probably the most important man when it comes to talking about Target <laughs> books. And that is David Howe of, of, of Telos Publications. Hello, David. How are you? Hello, Jay. Oh, bless you. Bless you. Well, yes. you know, when it comes to... Pick me up. Pick yeah. Me up. When, it com- <laughs> when it comes to documenting the Target books, you are the Andrew Pixley of the genre. My word, God. Well, and the reason. (laughs) Well, the reason for that is, of course, the Target book, which we shall get to in a little while. But before we do, I mean, let's just have a general conversation about various things to do with the Target books. And I suppose Mm. one of the things that's true for me, and probably from for a lot of other people too especially, well, given how successful the Target book was and given the subject of the You on Target book, the Target books, they were a hugely important people in a lot of... a hugely important element in a lot of people's lives. Is that possibly one of the reasons why you would take on something like the Target book? Why you would be that interested in the first place? Um, I think that's probably the case. Yeah, um, it's it's very it's a very difficult thing to try and quantify um, <clears throat> because there's a lot of nostalgia there. Um, there's a lot of um, they were sort of in the right place at the right time and and seemed to fill a sort of a hole that was there at the right time. Um, I mean, we're we're talking about 1973. Um, where probably most of your listeners weren't even born or glints <laughs> in their parents' eyes. And some of their parents might not have been born in 1973. It's just a scary thought. Um, so 1973, um, I mean, there was no DVD, there was no video, no Blu-ray, no Netflix, no streaming, no Sky. You know, there was no way that you could watch Doctor Who except for, you know, when the BBC showed it on each Saturday evening. Um, there, there were precious few repeats as well. I mean, you know, you, you just if you missed it, you missed it. You, you couldn't you couldn't go back and um, sort of watch it in, in the way that we can access it these days. You know, and JR, the kids of today, they don't know how lucky they are. No. Um, <laughs> so, 
so so way way back then um it, it was a time when john Purby was the doctor um he'd been the doctor for three years obviously he started in, in january 1970 um and the show was enjoying you know incredible success because i think barry letts and terence dix and um, producer script editor at the time they kind of hit on this little formula hadn't they of, of sort of six or eight or how many it was stories a year each one of them in sort of four or six parts and um you know, it sort of like crossed all the boundaries and ticked all the boxes. And, and, and John Pert, who was a very action-packed, dynamic doctor um, for the era. And, you know, he was, he was enjoying a lot of success. And I think there was a, a burgeoning interest in, you know, Doctor Who stories past. Um, I know, speaking uh, for myself, my earliest memories of watching the show on television um, were uh, Evil of the Daleks, Tomb of the Cybermen. So we're looking at what 1966 um, was, where I was five. <laughs> That's my earliest memories of watching Doctor Who on television. Um, so when we get to kind of the 70s, I'm watching John Pertwee every every week. But you don't tend to think too much about what you'd seen as a kid or what you half remembered. It's just sort of there lurking in the background. And the book that sort of brought it all home really was was the original Pickle making of Doctor Who with a wonderful John Pertwee and the Sea Devil on the cover. Because that book, um, for the first time, sort of anywhere really, um, presented a list of all the Doctor's past adventures. And although it wasn't a list in kind of stories as we understand them, it sort of listed them out by kind of, and there was this adventure and the enemy was the Sensorites, or the enemy was space. I always remember that one for, <coughs> for the inside the spaceship story. And it was space or the Daleks or the, the Vood or whatever it might be. And this kind of just fired the imagination that, that Doctor Who had this history. And there was a whole pile of stuff that presumably had been transmitted or, to be honest, at the time, for all we knew, completely made up yeah. <laughs> by terroristics <laughs> and Malcolm um, you know, we had no real reference point for it, but there were all of these potential past adventures that, that you know, that, that maybe, you know, oh, what was that? Oh, that sounds good. Oh, that sounds great. Um, and then, of course, the next year, um, it's up 72, I think that came out. And then 73, or was it early 74, we had the um, Radio Time special. Yeah, the yeah. anniversary um, came out. And that, again, actually had photographs of all of these old monsters and, and stuff and all the old stories. And again, you, you start to get this appreciation that this show has got this immense history that is, is kind of inaccessible because it's the past. Um, do you think also... Is, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, do you think also well, late 72 and early 73, the broadcast of the Three Doctors in a wider sense was a very definite sign on the television for people to sort of think about the history of the show too. I think so. Um, yeah. Again, you always have to look at these things in some sort of context. Yeah. And certainly in 1973, in the context of the majority of people who were watching Doctor Who, um, they probably didn't even know that there were previous Doctors. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Terence Dix always said continuity is basically as much as you can remember. Mm. Um, you know, you shouldn't worry about it. You know, <laughs> if you can remember that there was something with this, then you can use it. Otherwise, don't worry about it. Um, so the three doctors in a way was a kind of like a really nice anniversary story. Um, there was no. Well, there was a sort of a burgeoning fan club around at that time. Um, but there was nothing particularly big. That was Keith Miller's um, Doctor Who fan yeah, club was yeah. sort of around around that time. Um, but there was nothing kind of like we have at the moment, nothing global or nothing 
you know, significant or, or particularly large or influential or, or anything like that. So, you know, Doctor Who was the sum of the memory of the people who made it. And so the three doctors was a kind of like a nod to the fact that there had been these 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 other two doctors. But I, I still think, frankly, that, you know, if the three doctors had had, you know, Arthur Farns, Barnes and Charlie Spriggs as, as the previous <laughs> two doctors, no one then would probably have batted an eye. No. You know, it would only have been the fans years later that went, well, why on earth did they recast those parts when they could, you know, and it's like, well, does it matter? You know, really, yeah. does it matter? Because you're just presenting another story. Why don't we have 27 doctors? You know, and it's only because Doctor Who has reached the point that it has, uh, where fandom is so um, sophisticated and we have access to all of this knowledge of everything that's gone before, that we kind of, in some respects, tie ourselves up in knots to try and make it all fit. Yeah. Whereas it would be much more fun if we just didn't bother, you know, <laughs> um, and well, just a great television show. <laughs> Unfortunately, so, um, the people making it tend to walk the fine line between those two extremes, don't they? Well, Absolutely. So where we're sort of coming to with all of this is that this is this is the era into which the target books were born. And um, as I as I kind of document in the target book, which yeah. is, is my book all about the history of the target books. Basically, it was um, a couple of guys from the Universal Tandem Book Publishing Company, which was run out of a small shop front in in London. Um, very small company, went along to a kind of like a trading fair um, looking for titles that they might be able to buy or the things that they might be able to do um, and found these three hardback books from the 60s that were long out of print and the rights were available um, and so thought, well, ooh, Doctor Who, that's fairly popular. Let's, let's, let's pick up those and see how that goes. Um, and they wanted them because they were setting up this children's imprint called Target. Um, into which they wanted to publish kids' books, basically, um, which was great. And um, so they bought the first three titles, Doctor and the Daleks, Doctor and the Zarbi, and Doctor and the Crusaders. Um, they then approached the Doctor office at the BBC and said, oh, you know, we've got these, could we do some more? And Terence and Barry said, well, yeah, sure, and I'll write them, as Terence often <laughs> tells the story himself. Um, so, you know, they had a willing, willing audience there to, to sort of do these older stories and stuff. And so you get these suddenly, if you're a fan of John Pertwee's Doctor Who and you loved Day of the Daleks and you loved, you know, um, uh, Spearhead from Space and Auton Invasion and, and so on and so on, um, you can now access those stories again because they're there in novel form and you can read the adventure and replay it in your head, uh, which is fantastic. Plus, of course, you, you get these earlier ones, these Daleks, Arby's Crusaders, that you've never seen. And, and they, they absolutely fascinate you as, as these, these little books that, are, that have got lovely cover illustrations of monsters and doctors and, you know, strange worlds. And, and isn't that the attraction and beauty of Doctor Who is that it, it promises to take you, you know, to, to adventures in wild and far flung places and times um, that, you know, you could only dream of visiting. You know, but, but in the company of the Doctor, you can actually do that. And, and that's, the, you know, that's the, the fundamental essence of the show, really, isn't it? And it still is, in that you can go anywhere, do anything, meet anyone, anytime, anyplace, anywhere, have adventures, and the Doctor will always be there, and, you know, hopefully he'll always be out. And you, you'll have a, a rollicking adventure with lots of scares and excitement away, but at the end of the day, everything's good, and you're back in the TARDIS. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. So... So the target books kind of did that, and and they were kind of like you know the the videos before videos existed of, of the old stories, and so um, as they started to publish them, um, so they found that there was this market for them. Um, I think it, the, the cover design was very clever. I think the the art editor um, 
at Target at the time, whose name completely escapes me. I'm completely it's sorry. It's in the sorry. book. Uh, <laughs> it's in the book, probably. Yeah. Um, I, I think, um, was it uh, Brian Miles? I think Brian Miles might have been the art editor or the marketing manager. I can't remember. Anyway, um, it was very cleverly designed, the book covers, and, and they're very collectible. Um, you know, even before they started to number them, uh, and that was a very cynical ploy by W. H. Allen. Oh yeah. In the seventies, yeah. eighties, to number them, so people were, oh, I haven't got number twenty-seven. You know, I have to go and buy that one. I mean, that was a kind of like a try and get people to buy more kind of ploy. But in the early days, they weren't numbered, um, but they were these marvelous books, and they were very well produced, and, and the covers were beautiful. And they were very collectible. And so kids went out and said, oh, I must get my next Doctor Who book. I must get my next Doctor Who book. You know, I love the books. And it got kids reading. And, and that, was, that was what kind of draw, drew people in and, and progressed them, I think, to the phenomenon that they kind of eventually became in the 80s and um, early 90s. Well, there was uh, a kind of a... the target range basically died, so... Yeah. Well, there was kind of a sort of three-pronged thing going on here. The target books... And this has been said so many times, but it bears repeating. They are, for a lot of us, what taught us to be able to read and write. And yes. that's, and yes. yeah, and not just sort of read and write, but also because they were of things that we could remember, but only sort of vaguely half remember and sometimes mm -hmm. couldn't remember at all. They fired up our imaginations because we had to imagine what we could remember as much as we could remember it in order but to think, make sense of the books. Yeah. Right. yeah. And so you get you start to get a lot of fan myths kind of come in because, you know, stuff that you read in the books, you kind of think, oh, that must have been the TV yeah. series. Like, it's a good one, Echo, from the Ice Warriors, where everybody thinks that the computer in the Ice Warriors is called Echo. Well, it's just not named in the television show. It's, it's just not called anything. Yeah. But it is called Echo in the, the book. So the, these things start to bleed together a little bit in people's memories and minds. Uh, and you have these scenes that you're sure you remembered, but actually it's in the book rather than the TV show. Yes. Because, you know, sometimes the scene that you remembered in the TV show isn't actually in the book because that they are slightly different from each other. Um, but it's a fascinating phenomenon because, as I said, there's a lot of nostalgia there as well. Um, I mean, I, I'm in a, a, a sort of a nice position at the moment, I suppose, in that I'm doing the liner notes for all of the BBC Audio um, CDs of the of the Target books that oh, they right, are releasing. Yes. So each one that they release, I go back and I reread the book um, so that I can kind of get a sense of the essence of the writing, of how it differs from the television show, you know, of what it's trying to achieve. Um, and then obviously I can write some liner notes about that and highlight some of the more important sort of differences or, or, or elements of, of the um, of the book. Um, so it's nice to revisit all these things and, um, and sort of look at them with adult eyes, if you like. Um, that's, you know, and generally speaking, it's, it's a very strong range of books. Yeah, that's some really nice homework, isn't it? Being forced to read the target oh, yeah. books for your job. Forced to read the target books, <laughs> You, yes. couldn't, you yes, can't absolutely. really argue with that. But the other thing as well, no. of course, is... I mean, and this is true for me too. When I started buying the Target books, I used to watch Doctor Who regularly on the telly, but I wouldn't exactly have called myself a fan, partly because I probably mm. wouldn't have understood what a fan was, but because no. of the Target books, and as soon as you buy your first one, then you need another one, then you need you all of them, and then you, you need, need them to them. release yeah. more, yeah. And that is yeah. kind of, I think for me, I think the Target books drew me far more into being a fan in the sense of the term as we know it now, than the television programme probably ever did. 
I think you're probably right. I mean, I think there's that sense of ownership as well. In that, in that until the advent of video and DVD, you couldn't own Doctor Who. You couldn't yeah. own the show. You know, you could only watch it on telly. Um, if if you had the ability, you could record it on audio, perhaps. Yeah. Um, you know, if you were if you were stupidly rich, maybe you could have recorded it or filmed it all on eight millimeter film reels or something. <laughs> I don't know of anybody who ever did that <laughs> who recorded um, you know entire episodes on on eight millimeter film or whatever. But you couldn't have done it if you had enough money. It was just very expensive. Um, so yeah, and I think that the collectability of the books at, at 25p or 45p or whatever it was that they cost was a big element that you could afford that in your pocket money or or the money that you weren't doing your paper round or, or whatever it might have been. Um, you know, they, they were a very affordable way of, of collecting the show um, that you had fond memories about. Um, and I think that kind of carried through. And so you've got this essence of, of, of the cover artwork is, is very iconic and very instantly recognisable. Um, there are some fans... Um, I, I'm not among them because I don't have that good a memory, but I know exactly what they mean, is that if you put all the target books in transmission order on a shelf, you get a colour pattern. You can recognise that colour pattern. Oh, really? Because, because you, know what a, you know what a full set of the books on the shelf needs to look like. Yeah, you, yeah. Know, you, know, you know which ones are white, and you know that it goes a purple, and it goes a yellow, and then it goes a white, and then it goes... You know, you know what colour the spines are. Yeah, I can see what, what you mean. What your set needs to look like. Yeah, I actually have it's mine. It's kind of like it's. A... I was going to say I actually have mine two feet away from me now, from where the computer's yeah. set up, and I and yeah, I can. I wouldn't be able to say what order they came in, but if you took three out and put them somewhere else, swap yeah. them with three others. If you reordered, I'd know. Them or, yeah, or I'd know as it, soon as I looked at the shelf. Yeah. It wasn't quite right. It's not. Doesn't look quite right. You know. Um, so I think this, this, it's, it's a fascinating combination of nostalgia and collecting and, and wanting to engage with the programme in, in some way, shape or form. Um, as I said, these days there's far too much to collect. It's, it's, it, I would say it's impossible to get everything. Um, and, and that kind of spoils it a bit because there is that element that, you know, like Pokemon, you've got, got to catch them all. You yeah. know, mm. well, you can't catch them all. It's not possible anymore. It used to be possible, but it's not possible anymore. Um, and that's a bit of a shame. But, no, we're talking about, you know, the target books. And it is that element of nostalgia of being kids, of, of learning to read with the Doctor Who books, um, the, the learning the adventures and the way it worked, and, and also appreciating the cover art and the, and the way that the books were constructed. Uh, and I think there's a very strong nostalgia element, which certainly when, when I did the target book <coughs> was what we were playing into. <laughs> Um, you know, e even down to, you know, the, you know the, the simplified cover with just three doctors and the target symbol on the front. And also the idea of doing all of the target covers in the back in a sort of a gallery. Um, because well, yeah. everybody remembers the back cover of the original, the first Doctor Who Monster book, where they had something like nine or 12 of the covers just basically in a gallery on the back cover. Yes. And everybody remembers that that kind of way of displaying the books. And so we said when we did the Target book, I said, no, I must have a gallery with the covers on in order on the back. And that, and then that was why we did it was because it's, it's again, it's that nostalgia pull. If this needs to look like that, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. a strange thing. Target books needs to look like that. Um, oh, I have I it open. Explain. I have it open in front of me now and it's uh -huh. wonderful. In fact... Ooh. This book, I mean, elsewhere throughout the book, you've also got most of the covers 
slightly larger as well. Yes. Plus alternative covers yes. that were never used. So That's we, right, yes. Um, even without the writing, I was gonna say, this is a must-buy publication. It's just a gorgeous piece well, of work. Well, I hope so. I mean, I, I found that over the years I'd, I'd collected so many of, of the Target covers. Um, as I, I, My first Target book, the one that I got, was, was probably 1974, which was Curse of Peladon. Um, and I then very quickly kind of filled in the gaps uh, before that and then collected them from that point onwards. Yeah. Um, and I think about a year or so after that, so 75, 76, um, whenever it was that it started, in fact, I joined the Target Book Club um, run by Sandy Lesseter and was getting newsletters and cover proofs and all sorts of stuff from them. Um, I know that in 1977, I first met Terence and Malcolm Hulk. Um, and I did my first fanzine, and of course that was also when the first Doctor Who convention was. So I was definitely a fan by that point. Um, and I had a fascination with um, the Target covers. And indeed, you know, the very first fanzine I ever did had a Target section where we printed the cover of the new book and stuff that was coming out. And that, that continued through um, my fanzine Oracle, and then through my fanzine The Frame. You know, I always had a forthcoming Target book section. And I, yeah. and I, so I was collecting all the covers. All this kind of stuff. Now, when I came to do the research for the Target book, um, Peter Darville Evans, um, who was the last editor at Virgin of the range, um, and indeed, of course, this was after the Target books had, had stopped completely, um, he very graciously allowed me access to Virgin's files, uh, which contained all the files for all the Target books going back way, way back when, etc. Um, and it was in those files that I found a lot of the sketches and alternate covers and things that weren't used and all sorts of stuff. And again, he allowed me to to take copies of these things. So um, I had this wealth of, of information that I could then use in the book. And I, I also um, augmented that by contacting a lot of the artists and asking if they had sketches or other pieces or whatever. And again, we picked up a whole load of stuff through that way. Um, and so, yeah, so, so the Target book is it's the history of the Target books as the Doctor Who books. It's also kind of like a history of the publishing of them as we yeah. go through all the publishers and buyouts and all that kind of stuff as we go through the story of them. Um, but it's also a history of the covers and the developments and, and things that were never used and things that could have been and, and all this sort of thing, uh, which, which is really interesting um, to see these things that were never used. Uh, and also to try and explain why they weren't used and, and, you know, why didn't they use these Patrick Troughton face covers for um, Tomb of the Cybermen or, or, or John Pertwee's face on the mutants, things like that. Um, so there's a lot of stuff like that. that I, I, and really, I just wanted to pour it all into one great big pot, you know. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, this is all the stuff that's to do with the Target books. This is everything you could possibly want to know. Um, so well, we had great fun with that. So, well, uh I am going to not apologise for saying this, but any Doctor Who fan who doesn't have this book already has to buy it now. This is an <laughs> absolutely essential, gorgeous, beautiful piece of work. And I have a particular reason for saying this, and the reason is this, and it leads on to my next question. But I didn't buy it when it came out, because it had just been in Doctor Who magazine, and that's what I'm going to ask you about, essentially. And so I thought, no, I can probably wait. I don't need to buy this straight away. I've got all the Target books. I've read the articles. I can wait. And then the next thing I knew, it was out of print and it was going for 60, 70 quid on eBay. <laughs> and yes. so this reprint now, 
you know, as soon as I heard about it, the first thing I did was I went online and I pre-ordered it and made damn sure of getting a copy. And I have a copy now. And thank God for that. I don't want anybody else to be in the same position as me getting to the point where it's out of print again and they haven't got a copy. So get a copy now. So here's the next question, because, I mean, it's an expanded version of the articles you wrote for Doctor Who magazine. Was it suggested to you that you write these articles or did you suggest to Doctor Who magazine, here's something we could do? And then how did the book come out of that? Um, that's a good question. I can't really remember is the answer. I think I suggested it to um, was Gary it Clayton? Gillatt. Oh, was it? Oh, right. Gary. I think right. it was Gary Gillatt at the time. I think I suggested it because obviously I'm a massive fan of it. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted there to be a, a history. So I think Gary agreed and sort of said, yeah, yeah, we'll commission you. Um, I've got a feeling that initially I didn't know how many parts it was going to run to. Um, and I just started researching it, started at the beginning, started doing all, all the work and stuff, um, tracking down everybody. Yeah. Um, and and it, it kind of then transpired that, you know, there was so much here that Gary basically then ran it, I think, every other issue for about six months. Um, yeah, yeah. Or something. Or something like that, or, or I can't really remember this. I so think it was ago. probably across about maybe five parts. Possibly, like yeah. so maybe it ran for a year, sort of every other issue or something like that. Um, so that was what it was. It was simply he obviously thought it was a good idea. Where obviously when I started delivering it, that's great, um, and it just sort of all came together. Um, and then I, I did the target book because I had all that material. Um, yeah. Again, it was like I had all this stuff. That I could use to um, to sort of to put in, and more because as I say is is having done the target the articles for Doctor Who magazine um, there was then so much more that they couldn't fit in and I thought well, it's a shame that this stuff can't be seen somewhere so you know let let's try and put it into a book um, and of course and, and call it the target book yeah and it's a no brainer really when you've got something like that to collect those articles together. And, you know, expand them where possible yeah. and where necessary. And to exactly. use extra art and stuff like that, it, to, to yeah. bring it out as a book was a no-brainer, really. I, ha I have to give credit, too, to um, Tim Neal, who um, I, I contacted to work on the book with me. Because Tim was running a website called On Target, which contained a wealth of detail about the books and, and all sorts of stuff. Right, yeah. Um, and I, and I realised that, you know, to do the Target book, I needed a lot of additional information. And so Tim came on board to basically help with a lot of the additional biographies and, and biographies of the authors and the artists. And, and the, the book is full of little lists of things and, you know, top 10 opening chapter titles and, and all <laughs> sorts of things and stuff like that, which Tim kind of um, sort of researched and sort of poured into the mix. So there was a lot of stuff that Tim did um, to sort of make the book work. And, of course, the other person that there has to be uncredited is Arnold Blumberg, who did all the layout on the book. Um, oh, of course, you know, it, yeah. It's such a beautiful book because of Arnold's work on it and in, in taking this, this wealth of visual information and sort of somehow distilling it into the actual book as laid out on the page. It's, it's kind of like a, an art in itself, and Arnold did an incredible job on that. So I can't, you know, take all the credit. There, there, there are other people involved in these things. Um but, uh, but yeah, no, it, it's, it's true. It's, it's like, you know, Gary initially commissioned the articles, so that was how it started. You know, Doctor Who magazine printed them, and, and we, we found a load of stuff when we were doing the Doctor Who magazine. Then we found a load more. You know, then it all kind of went into the book. So it's good. It's good. 
Right, you've you've told us what your first target book was, and yes. a little bird has told me that you're going to tell the full story of that in Chris's You on Target book, so I shan't oh, yes, press you for that's more. Right. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about Telos books in general, because you went from being you know, a small chap who's buying a copy of the first his first target book, <laughs> The Curse of Peladon, in yeah. uh, it, down in Cornwall, as I recall. That's right. To being a chap who's actually published his own book about the target books through Telos books. How do you go from being somebody who's getting into writing for fanzines and stuff to being somebody who's, you know, certainly within the sort of world of Doctor Who, a well-respected publisher. How, do, how does that journey take place? Well, bless you. Um, I mean, it, it's kind of like, a you know, a journey of happy accidents and perseverance, really. Right, um, yeah. I mean, as I, I mentioned before, um, back in the 70s, in 1970, end of 1976, I did my first fanzine. Um, and I, I did that just because I wanted to write stuff and have a magazine out there yeah. with... Um, you know, with stuff that I I kind of pulled together in it. Um, so that I think it was nineteen sorry end of 1976 I joined the Dwarfs, the Doctor Who Appreciation Society, and then August 77 was when their first ever convention was going to be, and I decided that I wanted to have a fanzine available at that convention. I wanted to do something. Yeah. Um, I mentioned that I'd been interviewing Terence Dix and Malcolm Hulk, so we had people that we could interview for the fanzine. I had Target stuff, so we had like a Target news page. Um, so yeah, I, I pulled together my first ever fanzine. You know, I, I typed it all out on on a typewriter, as I remember. I think I used Letraset for headings. I, it's, it's lost in the mist of time. Um, <laughs> I, I photocopied it at a local photocopy place. Now back then there were no photocopy places, um, but I happened to find like a local business that had a photocopier that would charge me six um, p a copy um, yeah. for photocopies. So I, I had. Um, um, Five pages in it, I think. No, six pages in it. Six six is thirty six. It costs thirty six. I charged thirty six p for it wow. uh, because it had six pages at six p a page. I made no profit at all, of course. Um, and that was the first um, fanzine that I ever did, and that was like a, a full scap um, um, fanzine. Do you remember what it was called? You it must. was called the, the Surbiton Doctor Who Appreciation Society Local Group Fanzine. <laughs> what a snappy title that was. That a snappy was. title because we'd sort of set up a little local group and there was there was me and Paul Simpson and Owen Tudor and Gavin French and, and a few other people all kind of in my local area in South London yeah. who were all kind of in the Dwass and, and sort of got together and uh, watched watched um, home movies that I'd made, 8mm films of my I built a Dalek, you know, as you do, all this kind of nonsense. Mm. Um, so that was the first ever fanzine. That that then developed into an A5 fanzine called Oracle, I think, from issue three. Yeah. Um, and Oracle then ran monthly for something like five years or something crazy until I was doing my A-levels, um, and um, I couldn't kind of do it anymore. Um, wow. And so I was basically publishing my own my own fanzine. Um, sort of that, that then led to... Um, sort of running the, 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 the Duas's reference department, which I think I took over about 1979 or 78 or something like that, when Jeremy Bentham left, um, I started running the reference department and I was publishing all sorts of things for the reference department. I did a special magazine all about the five doctors um, for the Duas, um, which was great fun, which was a full-colour litho kind of cover and oh, yeah. 
and beautiful photographs reproduced and all sorts of stuff like that so you know slowly just trying to do things better 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 and learning um, all the time i'm guessing and learning all the time um uh, towards the end of the 90s i joined um, the british fantasy society uh, because i also have a love of horror film and and, and horror writing and, and all of that literary kind of um stuff mm. and um i kind of started to publish some stuff for them and I did a book called Mythmaker for the Millennium uh, in um, 1999, which is all about Clyde Barker. Um, and that was a little paperback book, which was the first paperback book that I'd ever done. Um, but we managed to find someone who could lay it out, someone who could print it, someone who could do it, did the artwork, blah, blah, blah. So I did my first, that was the first paperback book I think I ever published. And you published that yourself? Basically, yeah, well, for the, the, the BFS. Right, uh, yeah. But I basically did it all myself, yes. Uh, founder printers, so on and so on. Um, wow. So all of that then kind of, it, it kind of like just, just went one to another. And I, I was publishing other things called chat books, which were like little fanzines for the BFS and, and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and it just kind of, kind of went on from there really. And as I say, so, so 1999, I did that. Um, I mean, then what happened, I think, was it 1999 or was it earlier? I can't remember. Yeah. I can't remember because I'm, I may be getting ahead of myself slightly because then a whole pile of stuff all happened at around the same sort of time. Right. Um, there was um, there was a TV show called Urban Gothic on Channel 5 Late Nights, um, a horror anthology show, half-hour episodes, which I loved, and I watched the first season of that and absolutely loved it. Um, so I got in touch with the production company and, and talking to them and said, oh, could, you know, I'd love to do a book of, of anthology book. And they said, yeah, 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 we'll love you. We'll let you do a book. Oh, fantastic. Awesome. So there was the possibility of doing this anthology book on urban Gothic. Um, similar time zone, Arnold Blumberg had got in touch with me from America wanting to do a book on Doctor Who merchandise, which was something that I'd long wanted to do but never managed to get off the ground. Yeah. So we, we'd been working on a book on Doctor Who merchandise um, for a long time and hadn't been able to find um, a publisher for it. So we kind of said, well, let's just do it ourselves. Um, so so we, we we kind of did that book ourselves. Um, and again, I found a printer to do it and we, we put it all to Arnold, did the layout. You know, we did the whole thing on um, the, the first edition, ever edition of the House Transcendental Toy Box book. Yeah. Um, but what had happened a, a couple of year or year or so previously, so around... Um, 1996 or, 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 or something like that. Yeah. Um, everybody was going domain name mad because the internet was sort of taking off. Right, yes. And everybody was buying domain names left, right and centre. Um, so, oh, it gets a bit more, yeah. So also, of course, um, around the start of the 90s, we started doing the books for Virgin um, and that came out of the fact that we were doing the frame fanzine. Yes. But Peter Darville Evans thought these guys know how to write, they know how to lay out, they know how to design, you know, let's get some books from them. So we, we did the 60s, obviously, and then 70s, 80s, and the handbook series and all of that kind of stuff, that good stuff. So that was happening during the 90s. Um, so the domain name thing, as I say, came about, and everyone was buying their own domain names, and I bought my House Who domain because that was the name of my column in Doctor Who magazine. Yes, I was, of course. I was yeah. writing by that time as well. And all of these things, they just kind of, they kind of, one happens on the other, happens on the other. And it, it's a combination of networking and knowing who to talk to and, and just, just blind luck, really, of being in the right place at the right time um, with the right idea. And um, 
So I bought my House Who, and then I was also looking around for other domain names, and I was just looking at other Doctor Who stuff, and like, you know, Daleks, that had gone, Gallifrey, that had gone, you know, Time Lord, that had gone, Doctor Who, that had gone, Telos, oh, that's available. So I bought the telos.co.uk domain name, not having any thought as to what I might need that for. It just, it was, I thought it's short, it's only five letters, it's easy to remember, it might be handy. Yes. So um, what we then did was we decided to use that domain name to promote the House Transcendental Toy Box because we had a book, but we thought, well, how are we going to promote this? And I thought, well, I've got a domain name. Why don't we just set up a web page to promote the book under that domain name? Makes it easy, you know, and we'll call that, we'll put Telos on the spine, you know, call it a Telos book, what the hell? Um, so so we did all that. That was going on. Um, then in the horror fantasy sphere, in the BFS sphere, um, another friend of mine there, P. Crowther, has set up a publishing company called PS Publishing. And he was publishing quite successfully a series of um, horror science fiction fantasy novellas by a number of different authors. And I thought these were great. And I thought it was a great idea. And I thought, well, I'd quite like to do some Doctor Who ones. I wonder if we can do some Doctor Who ones. So I contacted the BBC and said, you know, could we do some Doctor Who ones? Sort of sent them in a, a proposal thing and a, an outline, a cost breakdown and all the good stuff that you'd expect in a business plan. Um, and they came back and much to my surprise and pleasure said, yeah, we'll, we'll license you to do some Doctor Who novellas. You must um, have asked at the right time. I must have done, exactly. Um, and they said, no, but we won't license you. We, we, we'll only deal with a company. You have to be a limited company. Yeah. So you need to set up a limited company. So I thought, well, right then. So I set up a limited company. So I set up telos.co.uk, telos publishing. Um, I contacted um, Steve Walker, who was a friend I'd known for many years in, um, in Doctor Who fandom. And, of course, uh, one of your collaborators on the handbooks absolutely, and so on. Absolutely, absolutely. So, and also Steve, um, at the time, worked for local government doing um, small business legislation. Um, so he was basically well, very well versed in running companies and what you needed to do and everything. And I, so I, I said, look, Steve, you know, I'm doing this. Do, do you want to come in and partner with me in the company? And he said, yeah, sure. And thus was Telos Publishing born. So um, we started... But I don't know whether you were the first, but you were certainly the first I was aware of, of an independent publisher outside of the BBC and Target and Virgin and so on, mm -hmm. but an actual independent publisher. Well, who you was could publishing... say that maybe Who Dares, maybe Andrew Skillis' Who Dares books, the Sideman book. Oh, of course, yeah. But, I mean, oh, you were the first one that seemed to be a company that was actually doing this as an ongoing thing. Possibly. I don't know, I, yeah. Yeah, you're probably right, actually, yeah, if you, if you go. But, well, I suppose Who Dares was for a time. So, um, mm. so yeah. So we started to pull together Doctor Novellas, but in the meantime, the Urban Gothic book kind of took off. And so we decided to make that a co-production between Telos and the BFS. So it was actually the Urban Gothic collection was the first book that Telos actually published. Right, um, yeah. And then I think followed by um, Time and Relative, the first of the Doctor Who novellas. Um and then we just kind of continued from there. And that, actually, um, and we that's by Kim Newman, isn't it? That was by Kim Newman, yeah. That's um, quite a nice name to have on the cover of your first book. Absolutely. And that's why we chose Kim to do that, because yeah. he's a tremendous writer, um, very talented. And, and, you know, he absolutely came up trumps with that book. It's a brilliant book. Yes, it is. Um, so we, we, we kind of just kind of continued. And we realised, of course, that we couldn't rely on the BBC licence. Um, we had to do other things. So alongside the, the Doctor Who novella range, um, we started to develop other books and other things. Like we, I think we did a, a guide to Stargate was one of the early ones that we did. Um, and, uh, and so we just kind of went on from there. And 16 years later, we're still here. We you know we're still publishing loads of books. 
Well, um, I had one through my letterbox just a couple of days ago. Oh, yes. Fact. Time of the Doctor. Yeah, the new uh, one from Stephen. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So that's been a long time coming. So I'm glad that that's kind of finally seen the light. Today. We actually had the hardbacks of that in today. So Steve's been here signing them. Oh, right. And so we'll be sending the hardbacks out a bit later in the week. So um, they're great yeah. books, actually. They're, they're essentially, I suppose, kind of the modern day equivalent of the program guide. But they're sort of, yeah, a bit yeah, more but, detailed. Oh, oh, so much more detailed. Vastly more detailed. Yeah, yeah. they're they're, they're the. Uh, if you like the new series, they're basically the books you need to get. Oh, we thank you. We'd like to think so. They're very yeah. accessible. They're very readable. Very accessible, and then they cover off. You know, um, it's kind of like a, a watcher's guide almost. In yeah, it's yeah. like looking in on what's happening. So you we, don't we, need to. Yeah, they're not so filled with so no. much minutiae that they become sort of off-putting. But there's no. enough there that you learn about everything. And the That's great right. thing is, the bits that I always prefer are the bits where you've got people's opinions. Obviously, Stevens. Well, Steve does quite a good analysis of all the stories. But I mean, I actually quite like the earlier sections, which is sort of setting the scene. And, and oh it's yeah, like, yeah. You know, this is what it felt like to live through. You know, 2008. Yeah. See, the, the, these were the new stories that we had, and in this order, and this is what was said, and this is what was developed, and this is what, you know, and it's that kind of the feeling of anticipatory, this is what it was all about at the time, which you actually lose um, very quickly. Yes, um, yes. And come to accept it. But what Steve tries to do is to capture that in, in the text so that we, we've got a sense of the, this is what happened in these years, you know, and not just these were the stories that were transmitted. Um, it's it's what happened around that as well. You know, who left, who joined, mm. what was announced, what else happened, how did it all develop, how did it come about, what was the periphery of all of this? And that's why the books also cover all of the books, all of the other books and comic stories and everything to do with those two years is also covered in the books. So they're quite an exhaustive and extensive look. And, of course, the new one, um, Time of the Doctor, covers the anniversary year, the 50th anniversary year. Yes. And that's in part why it's such a bloody thick tome, pardon my French, because um, <laughs> it's it's just got so much to try and cover yeah. um, in terms of the, the content. But, yeah, no, we're very pleased with them. And, yeah, and Telos oh. is still here. And, we're, we're, so we're doing lots of stuff. We've done lots of fiction over the last few years. I was just uh, going to add one thing before you yes. move on from, from Time of the Doctor. The thing that I love Stephen James Walker for most of all is that he always seems to include uh, one quote from me in his <laughs> reviews from the critics well, section. Well, there you are. See, and in this latest... Very insightful reviews, <laughs> that, that's what that is, In this yeah. latest one, he's chosen the most bloody awful quote I think I've ever written. <laughs> and if that doesn't incentivize people to go out and buy the book, I don't yeah. know what will. <laughs> yeah, because he doesn't like to just give his own opinion. He likes to sort of pick yeah, up some... Yeah. Some other critics that have been been you know publicly and um, published and stuff like that, and just generally sort of get okay. It's giving a feel, a sense for how these things for were were received and, and what was being said about them at the time. Um, and of course, that's something that we did in the television companion when we did that for Virgin was to very much try and give a review overview of how this was received yes. at the time, not what people think about it now, but what what was the reaction at the time so what did the newspapers say what did the critics say what did the fans say you know at the time um, and that's back that's in the immediate um feedback kind yeah, of thing yeah and that's back in print now too and again is, yeah. yeah and again that's an absolutely essential book when i was yeah. when, I, when i was sort of getting back into because i had a period during the 90s where i kind of lost my interest a bit and mm. then sort of at the end of the 90s early noughties when the DVD started coming out, really, I totally got back into it. And the television yeah. companion was the first thing 
that I went out and bought. And, you know, that was vastly important in getting me back into Doctor Who. Thank so, you. you know, that was, you know, you have a nag of yeah. understanding or realising what the essential books are going to be, really. Well, we hope so. Uh, I mean, you know, we always try. I mean, we don't always get it right, but we well. always try um, and try and make sure that, you know, what Telos is doing is, is worthwhile and, you know, it, and they're good books because, you know, we, we feel that we have a, a reputation of sort of some degree of quality in what we do um, and we don't want to let people down. So, you know, if we're going to do a, a factual book about anything, you know, whether it's Doctor Who or Blake Seven or Survivors or, um, you know, uh, what have we else done recently? Battlestar Galactica, The Avengers, the, the old things. I mean, we've got books coming up. There's one on Transformers. I think there's a Power Rangers one we've got coming. <laughs> um, there's all sorts of stuff we've got we've got kind of bubbling under that that will be out in the next few years yeah um, but we obviously what we want to do is we want to make sure that everything we do you know is a quality product and if, yeah. if you buy a factual guide from telos you, you are going to get something that is actually of worth um because if it's not of worth then you know why should we be publishing it kind of thing yeah so we, we do try very hard um to sort of make sure that that's the case and that's the same obviously with the doctor who books that we do um, as much as um, as much as the other books, um, it's it's kind of it's just the, the way we are, um, and we we put as much effort into the covers and all this kind of stuff as we do into the texts. Try and make sure they've got the best covers, the best look, looking books, good design, you know, nice looking inside. Um, you know, we really do try to make sure that what Telos does is is good and worthwhile, and that hopefully people will you know keep coming back. And buying yeah, novels, yeah. whether from us directly or from Amazon or from bookshops or whatever, you know, we don't really mind where you buy them as long as you buy them, you know. Um, and of course, we've got them on Kindle and Nook and Kobo now as well, and, and increasingly the backlist is being added to those platforms too. So it's all good. It's all good, and you know, we're still enjoying ourselves. Well, while you're here, then what? What other apart from sort of TV guides and uh, that sort of thing? What else to tell us do? Because that's not um, the whole of what you do by any no. stretch of the imagination, well, is it? We, 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 the last few years, we, we've been very busy. Um, we, we went through a little bit of a, a sort of a slight expansion of, of what Telos was doing. Um, we'd always done horror and science fiction and fantasy books. Um, I mean, we started doing novellas um, way back when um, with a book called Kate Wrath by Paul Finch, which was one of the earliest or the earliest horror novella that we published. Um, then we did titles from Simon Morden and... Um, Chris Fowler and um, Simon Clark and people like that. Um, fabulous, fabulous books that you know we absolutely loved. So we've always done um, horror and, and we're big supporters of sort of horror and fantasy and science fiction um, kind of elements. Um, and so we're kind of continuing that. I mean, we're now publishing um, as a great horror series by Helen McCabe called the Piper um, Trilogy which is all about like, the Pied Piper of Hamelin. Right. Um, yeah. as it's taking that as its backstory. But it's all about, like, this was actually real, and he, he actually was a child abuser and all this kind of stuff. It's a great horror trilogy, um, which is all about, you know, how this young lad kind of thwarts the Piper as a kid, and then as he grows up, he keeps, like, re-encountering him in, in the novels and until he finally sort of meets him in the, in the third novel, which we're literally on the verge of publishing, which is called The Codex, which is a new one. Right. So that's a great series. Um, I mean, we recently picked up um, Sam Stone's Vampire Gene um, series of books, which is an adult vampire series. Um, so there's no sparkly vampires there at all. Um, <laughs> it's absolutely a horror series, but it's tinged with kind of portal fantasy and a little bit of science fiction in that the vampires can time travel um, as well, um, and this series kind of takes a, a vampire family 
um, through you know various adventures and stuff like that. And there, it's a great series. We, we've just published um, Jaded Jewel, which is the sixth in the series. So there, there's six um, tremendous vampire books there from Sam, uh, and she's also doing a series of um, steampunk adventure. Um, novels for us um, where the first one of those was called zombies at tiffany's um, <laughs> which is which is a great play on uh, breakfast at tiffany's um, and it kind of gives you a sense of the fun that these novel, novel novels have got in them uh, and then we went on to cat in a hot tin airship um, what's dead pussycat um, and the <laughs> last one we published was um, category tentacles um, which was like Blimey. a great kind of set in a school, but there's a Cthulian monster in, in, in the basement, which is tremendous. And Sam's writing another of those, I think, for later in the year, which is called Cat and the Pendulum. So um, you can sort of see this has kind of got a sense of fun and a yeah, yeah. cheek kind of going on there. Um, we also branched out into um, historical romance and picked up a, a series of books um, called the Catherine series. Um, and I'm struggling to remember the author. Oh, oh, awful. Well, oh, people blimey. can look it up on the website. They can look it up on the web. Uh, the Catherine series was, was incredibly popular um, back in the 50s and 60s. Um, it's quite sexy, raunchy in a way. Oh, series right, of yeah. historical um, fiction novels about this girl, Catherine, and all of her different adventures. Um, these were originally published in French um, and then translated all around the world. Um, Juliet, Juliet... Oh, oh, begins with a B. Oh, don't worry. People Benzoni, can look Juliet it up. Juliet Benzoni, it came to me. Ah. Juliet Benzoni was the author. I'm terribly sorry. And Juliet, hey, very, you're, very, you've got the red button I on. Know. It happens to me all the time. She very she very sadly died. I think it was earlier this year, or it might have been oh. late last year. Juliet died. She was 90-something. So she'd right. been writing for, like, forever. Um, so she very sadly died. But we, we've picked up the English rights in this series of books, the Catherine books. We've published two of them so far. Um, there's actually seven in the series altogether, but the seventh book has never been translated into English. So Ooh. we're actually going to be doing the first English translation of this book um, into English. And, and these books have got fans like all over the world. So we're kind of looking forward to doing those. And as I said, they're a great set of books and, and, and hopefully we're doing them, doing them justice. So we did those. Um, we also picked up a pile of um, romance titles from Helen McCabe, which are things like The House on the Mountain and Love Rides Out. And, and these are traditional boy meets girl, girl meets boy, you know, boy loses girl, yeah, girl meets yeah. either they fall in love and live happily ever after kind of books. But again, if you like, you know, that sort of woman's own sort of gentle romance, um, <clears throat> then these, these are absolutely right up your street. You know, they're, they're, they're classic romances. And again, we've given them smart new covers and nice new illustrations and stuff. And, and again, you know, they're, they're doing well. So, um, well, it's so good to expand to your that. portfolio, isn't it? I know, and we've done crime books. We picked up a whole pile of crime um, from various authors. Um, there's so much that Telos has got. We've even got erotica, of all things. Um, I mean, I never, <laughs> I never thought we'd be publishing erotica, but we were sent some great ideas and some great books, and we thought, well, you know, why not? You know, every other publisher on this planet publishes erotica, so why, <laughs> why shouldn't Telos? So we've got some very, very naughty, raunchy, sexy books there in the erotica section <laughs> on Telus's website. I mean, we've even got some self-help books as well, as well about uh, fertility um, and stuff like that, which is, which is a great sort of self-help book in a series that we're, we're kind of plotting out. Um, so there's lots of different things that, that, are, that are available now through Telos um, that we never thought we'd be necessarily be doing. But, you know, as you grow, as you do more, you, you kind of get offered things. You know, would you say it'd be a, such a shame not to do that? That's such a great idea. Why don't yeah. we do that? 
you know and so um so these books kind of spring into life and spring into being um and it's great fun doing them as well because you know if you only do one thing all your life it gets a bit boring so yeah and you know all these other things is it's just kind of good it keeps it fresh well, and you did, not only that, but I mean, if you're helping to keep Doctor Who fans happy by publishing the kind of books that they mm. want, why shouldn't you keep other people happy by publishing the kind of books that they want too? Well, exactly, exactly. And, you know, and again, as I said before, we, we try and make sure all the books are produced to the, the same sort of telos standard of quality. So, you know, we, we do check them all and we do make sure they're as good as we can possibly do them. And the covers are lovely. And yeah, we, we, have, we have a lot of fun with it. Um but, you know, we, we publish people like Raven Dane. We've got some fabulous a, a, a book of Victorian ghost stories from Raven called Absinthe, right. Absinthe and Arsenic, which is a <laughs> tremendous short story collection um, of, of, of stuff from her. And then she's also done an alternative 1066 history novel called um, Death Stark Wings. Oh, yeah, um, that sounds interesting. Which is it's just kind of an alternate history. And it's like there, there's uh, raven gods and stuff like that around in 1066, helping and hindering Harold and stuff like this. So, again, you know, brilliant novels, brilliant things. We, we've got steampunk novels, one called um, Captain's Stupendous um, by <laughs> Reese Hughes, which is a story of three captains, um, brothers, who go out adventuring and have the most surreal adventures and uh, uh, as they go. Um you know, they're lovely, lovely books and lovely titles and, and good fun books. And, you know, we're very proud of everything that we publish um, through Telos. Um, we've got some good stuff, I think. But we just need people to go there and look at it and go, oh, that's interesting. That's, well, only that's... Three, that's only three quid on Kindle, goodness <laughs> sakes. You know, I'll grab that one. Well, I was um... just going to say then, the <laughs> final question, obviously. I mean, yes, yes. we've said it, but the final question is then. Well, it's not just a final question because we have said what, what the website is, but telos.co.uk. That's right, yeah. And here's a recommendation from somebody who's, you know, had a couple of books out and sort of not in by any stretch of the imagination in the same way, but obviously through Create Space, I'm now publishing the You and Who books myself. Right. But here's a recommendation from me for anybody buying, don't go to Amazon or anywhere else. <laughs> or maybe if you do want to go somewhere else, go to one of the sort of small independent Doctor Who bookshops, but go to the Telos website because if you want to support, you know, independent publishing, buy from source because that's other companies like Amazon don't get this bloody great stupid sized cut. Exactly. Make sure the money goes to the right place. That's bless you, JR. I mean, obviously, the downside is that we have to charge postage, and there's not much we can do about that. Um, wow. And, it, and it, it is what it is. Um, and, you know, and we try and charge what it is. Um, and, of course, Amazon doesn't. So bless their little hearts. Um, but, yeah, no, if, if you buy from the Telus website, 100% of the money comes to us um, and allows us to, to publish more books and invest in more titles um, that hopefully we think people will love and enjoy you know, and want to see. Uh, you know, and books like the Target book, going back to that one, I mean, they're not cheap. You know, I mean, a full color, 270 page massive hardback, hardback yeah, like in front yeah. of you, it's not a cheap book to do. You know, yeah. that's 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 got a considerable outlay on it for us. Um, and so there's a risk associated. And so obviously the more people that can pre-order books from us, it gives us, um, you know, the sense of how many we need to do, the interest in them, whether yeah. it's worth doing it in the first place. Um, we have cancelled books in the past where the pre-orders have just not supported the fact that we wanted to do a hardback. Right. Uh, and, and then we've just had to refund everyone's money, which, of course, we do. Um, so it's, it's one of these difficult things, really, is because obviously, as I said, buy from wherever you want to buy. If, if, if you want to get them from Amazon, then get them from Amazon. We really don't mind. Um, but obviously, if you buy from Telos Direct, we get all the money. 
so we can then use that money to do more books. Yeah, it's not like you get all the money and bung it in your pocket. Oh, God, no. (laughs) You get all the money, and that's what enables you to make the books that people want to buy. Exactly, to do more stuff. So, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Well, uh, well, thanks for joining me, David. That's been great. Thank you, J.I. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I I hope the um, the You and Who books continue to do well. I, I think I've got a piece in one of those, haven't I? Is it the first one? Um, right about the myth makers was that you on who yeah that was the second one yeah the second one was it yeah, yeah. i lose track but that's oh, worth buying too. the second one for <laughs> absolutely of course it is <laughs> <laughs> david thanks it's been it's been great thank you jr take care and now i'm with christopher bryant who, hello hello chris how are you i'm all right i'm good oh good you are, of course, the editor of the forthcoming book, You on Target. I am, of course, that. And that is why we're here today to talk about Target books. Which I'm really looking forward to. Well, let's dive straight in then. Tell me, Chris, do you remember what your very first ever Target book was? Well, I think I do. Um, because I, I think what I think my very first Target book was, was Carnival of Monsters. Um, and if it wasn't, then it was as near as damn it. And I was really, really very young because I got into. Um, I'm a little bit younger than you. Uh, oh, and, get over so, yourself. Okay, um, <laughs> and uh, I'm not much younger than that. But I got into Doctor Who in uh, season 18. Um, that was my introduction. I was about four years old at the time. Wow. Um, and so it wouldn't have been long after that that I would have been bought my first Target books. And I'm pretty certain Carnival of Monsters was where it started. Um, and I was actually, in preparation for this, I was just thinking about that. And I was thinking, what a book to start with, because it's the concepts in there are kind of mind-blowing. Um, it's not just your standard land on a planet, fight some monsters. You know, there's you know the mini scope, there's uh, lots of different locations, there's... Uh, stuff like that so it's uh, i'm i must admit that's the sort of thing that would have got me really uh sort of intrigued and so i think that was my first one that's a pretty odd yeah. one to start with isn't it it is yeah I, i'm i mean because it would have been bought for me by my mother and maybe it was the front cover yeah i mean the ti- the title carnival of monsters you think it's going to be a bog standard doctor who lots of monsters this sort of thing don't you yeah yeah but it's it's literally a carnival yeah 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 so, so yeah that was where it started um and then it just continued and i'm going to say the same thing that people always say about the target books which is that that's what we had we didn't have netflix we didn't have dvds we didn't have the internet uh we had books that had been written based on it uh and that was the only way of finding out what had happened before peter davison or wherever we happened to be at that time did you have a um, moment of revelation when you found out how many there were I don't remember that exactly. I think I think it would have been more a moment of revelation of realising that there was an end to them. Because you know, when you're that young, you just assume that there, these things are ongoing. That yeah. you, The idea that you would ever reach an end to it uh, wouldn't have occurred to me. Uh, and then at some point, I would have seen a list. Yes. Um, certainly, I remember the first time I saw a list of the televised <clears throat> stories would have been uh, the 100th edition of Doctor Who magazine, um, which had a big centre spread with all the stories up to that point, which I think was up to the twin dilemma. 
um, or well, maybe not to Revelation. Yeah. I'm not sure. It was certainly up to partway into Colin Baker. Um, and I would have just assumed that all of those were also available as novelizations, which at that stage they wouldn't all have been. Um, and then, of course, I was buying Doctor Who magazine, so therefore I was seeing reviews of new books coming out, and you gradually become more and more aware of it as a process rather than just a sort of cloud of stuff that you can go and pick from. So what were your favourites then? Well, <clears throat> it's funny well, you should ask the, that. Well, not, <laughs> not necessarily your favourites, because let's get into your favourites in a minute. Which ones yeah. are the ones that you sort of most remember or read most and most often? Because, I mean, if I if I were to choose my actual top ten, it wouldn't necessarily correspond entirely with all the ones that I was just reading over and over and over again when I was a kid. I mean, the ones I read over and over again were the ones that I actually owned, because I... I got them from various places. So I'd read some in the school library. They had quite a good batch. Uh, uh, and my yeah. local library in Rubina, they had um, a good batch as well. And I would never buy them if they were in one of those other places. So, uh, And also, I'd, I'd be less likely to buy it if I had it on video. Or if I had any access to that story, that wouldn't be one of the top choices. Yeah. Um, so the ones that I ended up with actually on my bookshelf, I wasn't very discerning in, ha- in which ones I re- read over and over again. I just sort of pick one and go, oh, that one again. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, anything that I owned, I knew really, really well by the time I'd had them for a couple of years. So there's some really embarrassing ones, like, for example, oh, I don't know, some really terrible stories that you know so well from the Target books from having read over and over again. Well, probably because I was an 80s kid. So, you know, all the 80s stuff. Um, I, w- I mean, I was a big Peter Davison fan, and his, his books are not the best, um, but all of his books I would have read over and over again. I mean, something like Time Flight, for example, I must have read that loads, um, wow. because it's a very <laughs> easy read, you know? <clears throat> whereas yeah. I probably have read that less often, uh, more often rather, than I would have read one of the sort of heftier things like The Green Death or something, um, because you can just sort of... It, you can barrel through it, can't you? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I didn't get really. An, uh, I I didn't get an aesthetic sense as to which stories were better or worse until sort of rather later in life, uh, late eighties, perhaps, when I suddenly started seeing some stories on television and thinking that's not as good as I'd have hoped. And then I started to wonder about the others. Did you get to a point when you, because I. There was one book that I didn't buy until years later because it was Battlefield that came out after the range had basically finished yeah. and I didn't pick it up till years later. But right up to the very end, even though I was, I don't know, 22 by the time the targets came to a finish and these were being written for basically 8 to 12 year olds and by the end, a lot of the time, I was just sort of really perfunctorily reading through the books because I felt it was kind of a duty to do so because I'd bought them because they were part of a collection but I'd kind of lost interest in some of those later targets but do you know if you ever A. completed the collection and B. actually read everything? I never completed the collection Right, Um, okay I Well, because what happened with me I mean, I would probably have done so but before I got that far, we hit the early 90s and the new adventures came out. Okay, um, yeah. And I started buying the new adventures. Not immediately. It took me a couple of years to start buying them. But once I had started buying them, I lost interest in the novelizations. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was you know, getting into my late teens by this point. And so 
um, from the, from around the mid to late nineties onwards, all my target books ended up in a box, just being moved from house to house, and uh, I've got into other things. So, so yeah. no, I never finished the collection, and there were. It turns out there were a couple of books that I still don't know how I ended because if I bought a book, I would read it, but there are a couple in there that I know I haven't read, um, and I so I'm now bewildered as to how I ended up owning them. Oh, um, you've got to spill the beans and name a couple of titles then. Well, okay, well I. I read recently for the very first time Day of the Daleks. Oh, wow. I know. I mean, that's a classic. Um, <clears throat> but I had it on video. Yeah. So I'm surprised. I, <clears throat> I must have bought it right at the end when I was just getting into the new adventures, intending to read it at some point, and never got around to it. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. And I'm pretty certain. I'm, I've got a copy of um, Brain of Morbius, which is the... Um, uh, you know when they did the reissues uh, with the and they were using the video covers yeah, as, yeah. on the front of it. So I've got a really lit, that edition of the Brain of Morbius. I'm pretty certain I haven't read that one um, because again, it, that was one of the first videos that came out. So that's something I can read at some point this year. Uh, I, I I've enjoyed sort of find, I, you know, reading Day of the Daleks for the first time and revisiting a couple of the others over the course of this year. Um, it's been a, a nice little. Uh, revisitation or visitation and i haven't reread the visitation <laughs> should we get into it then chris yep we can do that are you gonna oh okay we better explain for anybody who's not aware you've written up a list of your top 10 target books and that's what we're gonna do now well I wrote, it's interesting because when you on your um podcast's facebook page when you are asking everyone to come up with their top 10 so you could come up with your amazing top 50 which you put out last week um last week as we speak it'll probably be two or three we weeks speak. ago as this goes out <laughs> yes absolutely right last week as we speak um but i so i came up with one then to be part of that process and then when we talked about doing this podcast um i did it again without looking at what I'd done before. And then I compared the two, and they weren't that different from each other, actually, as yeah. it turned out. There were a couple of differences. Oh, but it's so a classic thing, though, isn't it? On any given day, a Doctor Who fan can name a completely different top ten, can't they? Exactly. But yeah. what I ended up with both times, which I think is interesting, is a top ten where the same writer doesn't turn up twice. I've got ten different writers in my top ten. Oh, on each of the two occasions. On both occasions, that happened. Wow! So I'm using my uh, I, I'm using my second list, my most my most recent list, and yeah, it's got ten different names in it again, which I I particularly like. That that is the fact. Well, that's um, really interesting. Are yeah. you doing it in a preferential order then? I am. Yeah. Oh. I can start at number ten and move up to number one. Shall we get into it then? Let's do that. Okay. What's at number ten? Uh, okay. So at number ten, it's Ian Martyr. Ooh. And uh, it's the invasion. Okay, well, uh, well it's not the me... obvious one, but the yeah. Inv- now, when I was when I do this, this we'll talk a little bit later about uh, you and who related issues. But yeah. in the very you and who way, I was thinking very much about what these books meant to me and how much they are important to me and things like that, rather than some sort of uh, I don't know five stars, four stars kind of thing. And yeah, yeah. The invasion. I remember being particularly excited by that one, uh, reading it on holiday for the first time, um, and then reading it over and over again. The front cover really kind of spoils who's doing the invading. Yeah, uh, it does, just a little but, bit. Um, but it's uh, it doesn't feel like... Because uh, I think the eight-part version from television 
you know, that's, you know, eight episodes of that is quite a lot. And then it's, it's actually a few episodes before uh, the Cybermen turn up, spoilers. Um, yes. But, it's, um, but it, it didn't feel like that in the book. Uh, it felt exciting throughout. I, I was really interested that this was like the debut of Unit because I'd read loads of Unit books by that point and seen some Unit on TV probably as well. Um, and so, yeah, I just re- I think this is a really, really good, um, a really, really good one. Uh, I mean, yeah. It's a good Troughton one as well. Actually, that's something I was going to say before I started. So I'll just leap in now to say that, that not every doctor is in here. And, there's, no. and some doctors turn up more than once. And it's interesting to see which doctors turn up more than once. Because that's not necessarily the same as what I would normally say my favourite doctors were. No, because actually, and Patrick Troughton's a great example, with Patrick Troughton on the telly, it's all about the performance. And that's the one thing the book can't give you. Mm. So, exactly. Yeah, a lot of people always talk about how difficult it is to. Um, they, when they used to do the missing adventures and the PDAs, they used to say yeah, how difficult yeah. it was to nail Troughton. But um, but yeah, I think Ian Martin makes a good case. And the funny thing is, actually, when you think about Patrick Troughton, the stories themselves aren't necessarily that good. I mean, some of them have fairly classic status, but a lot of the time that's because of the ideas rather than necessarily the execution. Yeah. So with there's the, a lot of base under siege, of course. Yeah. So I mean. That gives the author of the book a doubly difficult job because A, they've got to do it without Patrick Troughton's performance and B, they've also got to sell you exactly the same idea that's already turned up in a dozen Target books, basically. Yeah. But I can imagine The Invasion's probably still a fun enough read. It I mean, is, it's good. Yeah, especially if you catch it at the right age. Yeah. And it made your top 50, though only about halfway down. Oh, yeah, it did, didn't yeah. it? Okay, yeah. then, moving on to number nine. Okay, so number nine is the only book from the 60s, from the well, the only one of the three 1960s books no. uh, to make it into my top ten. So which one do you reckon? Oh, I, oh, you see, I want it to be the Crusaders. It is the Crusaders. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, it's the Crusaders. Uh, so all three of these were in my school library. Um, somehow I've ended up owning them as well. Actually, at least one of them I clearly bought from the school library. But... Um, uh, <laughs> I remember reading this one, and it was just so different from everything else. I, the bit I particularly remember is the bit where he's staked out in the desert and there's ants going to be crawling towards him. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and it's, it was really sort of gruesome and nasty stuff like that and some very adult themes, really. Um, and I was, uh, no, I was really, really gripped by that. And I think it's really well written. Um, and it's David Whittaker, of course. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and yeah, it's um, it, it's the one. I mean, the Zabi I don't think grabs me that much, and I've I've always uh, felt slightly distanced from the very very many different versions of the Daleks. Um, so, but so the Crusaders was the one that won me over really. And see, because of the, when he was writing it, David Whittaker was essentially selling that as something distinct from the TV series. Yeah, so it's, whereas, got a pro, it's got yeah. a prologue where. Uh, they all sort of chat about the morality of time travel and things. And it ends with uh, the Doctor saying something like, oh, I hope we come across a situation soon where the two opposing people both have very good reasons for what they're saying. Um, <laughs> and lo and behold, yes, they do immediately. Um, of course. It, it, so it, it's, it's different. It's very different from what would later come. But still a lot of fun. Yeah. I do love that book. I absolutely adore it. Okay, then, your number eight choice. It's Pertwee. Um, it's The Demons by Barry Letts. Oh, yes. Great yeah. book. Absolutely great. Um, 
good uh, illustrations. Um, the one of um, Azal towering over Garvin, and as uh, I think it's Miss Hawthorne and Benton are stumbling away, uh, sticks in my mind. Um, and uh, Miss Hawthorne as a character in general really stuck out at me from this book, um, to the extent that I was really kind of perturbed when I finally saw the TV version, and she was nothing like I'd imagined her. No. Um, but I like the TV version, of course. But um, I think the the book, which I read first, um, really really seemed, no pun intended, magical to me. Um, at well, the we time. kind of sort of half mentioned it, but Barry Letts really almost tells the story from her point of view. Every time you get a scene with her in it, you're very yeah. much in her mind. So she's kind of the glue that cements that book together. Yeah, I suppose so. I hadn't thought of that. But yes, it is kind of, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you're absolutely right about her character. I think I think she's the central character in the book, and she certainly yeah. isn't on the telly. No. And, and it's also um, the opening with Professor Horner and the um, BBC Three News broadcast is very interestingly and amusingly told with lots of uh, commentary on how the... Um, the interviewer is feeling at the time oh yeah sort of yeah um, yeah no that's a really good one this is barry let's having a bit of fun as he, at his own industry's expense yeah i suspect <laughs> go on then what's up up to number seven now aren't we number seven didn't appear in your top 50 oh really yeah it's the only one that doesn't appear in there anywhere um, name the author then if i name the author it'll instantly make it obvious oh the author, okay the author is peter ling Oh, The Mind Robber. The Mind Robber, yeah. Um, now, when I first read The Mind Robber, which I got it from my local library, and uh, in hardback, they, all their stuff was in hardback, yeah. uh, which was extra exciting. Um, and I'd never heard of The Mind Robber. Uh, I had no idea what to expect from it, and the sort of weirdness involved, and all these characters, and Gulliver, and uh, the Medusa, it, just, it was the, really the sort of thing to sort of catch my attention. Um, and this is the only time I, I, I remember this. It's the only time I ever did this. After I finished reading it, I went and handed it to my mother and said, you should read this. Oh, really? <laughs> and so she read it then and she enjoyed it as well. And she wasn't a fan. Um, you know, uh, so probably it was the only Target book she ever read. But, um, but yeah, I was like, I was that sort of excited by it. Um, and I probably must, I must have got that one out from the library loads of times. Um, I don't think the TV version does let me down on this occasion. I think the TV version is probably just as good. But it was, um, but yeah, it was just the ideas. I mean, it's both Peter Ling, of course. He's doing his own story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's so he just simply lays it all out there again. So I'm giving, I suppose, equal credit for the original ideas as for the book itself. I can imagine, though. I tell you what. That probably was a little bit like a sort of literary version of one of those Ray Harryhausen films. Do you know what I mean? I loved those, yeah. Yeah, and they, they're all about the set pieces, aren't they? Yeah. And The Mind Robber, actually, I can imagine it reading as a series of set pieces that are kind of, you know, stepping stones on the way to the destination. Yeah, definitely. And, and I, I, was, I, I always think, well, not always, but you know, after I read it a couple of times, I thought, well, how would this be done now? What would it, what would be different? You know, because I think, can you imagine if they tried to do something like that now? I mean, the cultural references would be different. It'd be fighting Pokemon or something. You know, yeah, it yeah. Be, you wouldn't get Lemuel Gulliver quoting Jonathan Swift. You couldn't. You just couldn't afford to do the mind robber now. <laughs> no, that's probably true. In order to do it, you'd have to have. You know, you couldn't. Um, you, you couldn't sort of hold back on the CGI, and you'd need CGI pretty much all the way from start to finish, wouldn't you? Yeah. 
Yeah, it would be unaffordable. This is the weird thing. In the 60s, you can do a story like that for Top and Saintly because nobody expects it not to look like anything other than a TV studio. To do it these days, it would have to be the most expensive Doctor Who story ever mounted. Yeah, it would. <laughs> Which is a real shame because I think that's the kind of thing that the series is begging out to do, but for the money. Yeah, it would be good. <clears throat> So then, Chris, your number six choice. At number six, we have Remembrance of the Daleks by Ben Aronovich. Okay, popular choice. Yes, so it clearly was. Um, I was surprised, I must admit, uh, by where it placed in your top 50, um, because I, although I love it, I think it's a brilliant book, I can't have the affection that would lead it to go to number one, because yeah. it was so late, obviously, you know, all those... That last, you know, couple of, I mean, I'm actually virtually paraphrasing what you said on your podcast, but that last couple of seasons worth of books, um, they were really well done and they were sort of, they pointed the way forward. Yes. But for that reason, they don't actually feel like target books to me. No, that's true. They're all a lot, yeah, they're all a lot bigger and they all actually, there was so much going on in them that wasn't necessarily what you'd seen on the telly that you were actually getting books that were kind yeah. of opening it, opening it up in a way that the new adventures would. Mm. But, um, I mean, I'm a big fan of Remembrance of the Daleks anyway, as I think you know. Um, yeah. But uh, this, is, so yeah, the book was always going to find its way into the top ten. No surprises there. No. But it's not in the top five. No. So into the top five. Yes. Um, number five, it's The Myth Makers by Donald Cotton. Oh, that's another, yeah, you see, because that's another one that made its way into the overall top ten that I yeah. found fairly surprising. Well, I, I remember the first time I tried to read it, and I didn't get very far. Uh, I got about two chapters in, and I didn't really understand what was going on. I put it away and came back to it another time. Um, wow. I just I had to, I actually had to have a slightly more sophisticated brain than I did at whatever age I was at the time to appreciate what was going on here. I was going, who's Homer? Who's Hector? What's going on? And didn't get into it but once i did get into it i really i mean i was around this time really getting into the early works of terry pratchett as well yeah uh and it's it's that part of my brain the part of my brain that enjoyed douglas adams and things like that, that i was just was gonna really say yeah it's not yeah. a million miles away from the douglas adams sense of humor yeah and i listened recently actually to the um to the soundtrack um and uh which i you know the, the audio recorder which yeah, I, yeah. i'd never heard before um and and that's good too <laughs> so it was a it was based on something good but he just took it into a different area and and took target books into a different area and you know there are the others that do similar things like the romans and the gunfighters they're good too but uh but yeah this is my favorite of that type yeah it's the the first and the best i have to say my experience of reading it was not wholly dissimilar from yours i didn't put it down but what i did do i spent the first couple of chapters thinking this is not a Doctor Who book. But then by the time I was into, like, chapter three or four, I was thinking, but who cares? It's just so much fun. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> so, you know, it was one of those ones where it kind of got by on a wing and a prayer at first. But it's one of those ones, if you can accept it, because I suppose th there are probably some fans who are thinking, no, you shouldn't be that disrespectful to the sort of medium of the source material, and you should write it like Terrence Sticks would have written it. But, I'm always suspicious of the word should. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you've got an opportunity to do something different, grasp it with both hands. Hey, yeah. you know David Whittaker, with the very first novelisation of a Doctor Who story, did it in the first person from Ian Chesterton's point yeah, of view. Yeah, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't being um, 
uh, sort of tight to the source material at all, was he? No, exactly. And, you know, as you have more access to the source material, whether that just be audio recordings or whether it be the DVDs, you know, the further away the target book is, the more likely you are to want to go back and read it. Yeah. So, your number four choice. Well, the next two were both books that I was surprised at how far down the top 50 they turned up. Oh. Um, number four is by Nigel Robinson, and it's The Edge of Destruction. I was just going to say, is it The Edge of Destruction? I mean, those books where they've taken two televised episodes and they've got to make a book that's as long as their book they made of the war games. Yeah. You know, I, they've got room to breathe in there. And I think The Edge of Destruction in particular has got loads of really great description of um, people walking around in the capital S ship um, and uh, this idea that the ships you know, become threatening, kind of, and they're, they're worried that something might be in there with them. And yeah, it's really nicely described and it's really atmospheric and uh, more so, I think, than the televised version. Um, and, and yeah, so that one, I think, is a real underrated gem. Wow. Okay, then what's your what's your number three? I couldn't believe this one wasn't in the top ten. I genuinely could not believe it. Um, the Doomsday Weapon by Malcolm Hulk. It wasn't that far off, though, was it? It was number 17. Oh, was it? Yeah, it made the top 20. Yeah. I think there are so many target books. I think to get in the top 20 was quite an achievement. But it's the Doomsday Weapon. <laughs> you know, I it's, know. It's this archetype of, oh, let's, let, let's look at these really quite dodgy televised episodes involving stock footage of an iguana and yeah. um you know some people wandering around and you know with beards and things and then there's these weird creatures and, and then it ends uh and turning it into this really sort of well-imagined future world and the flashbacks to how the characters met on moving walkways and uh, yeah, yeah. The, the inner life of the guy who pretends to be one of them norton i think yeah the character's yeah, called yeah. norton and he, he how he always wants to be an actor uh, and just lots of stuff like that it's really really in-depth and it's one of the first ones that did that um so that's um, it, it's that i think is an absolute classic yes i agree i think the only thing that mitigated against it was that since you know VHS and DVD have shown us the TV story for the first time in 40 years, I think people probably now have kind of put that book to the back of their minds, writing well, it. Mm. You know, sort of not everybody, obviously, but I think you know there's a tendency to write a book off as oh, it's the book of that story. Do you know what I mean? Well, it's really what we ought to do is write off Colony in Space. Yeah, <laughs> if we could just say, let's just shell, forget about Colony in Space. When you if you're doing a watch through. Get to that story and read the Doomsday Weapon, <laughs> and then you can put your DVD back on for the next story if you like. But because um, it's it's qualitatively much better. Yeah. Although I think the TV story is very underrated. Oh, it's not as bad as everyone says. No. <laughs> it, but it's not. You know. It's not it, as good it, as the book. <laughs> it's it's not as good as anything else in its season. I don't think. We're up to the top two, Chris. Oh, exciting! Exciting. Um, <laughs> number two. What's at number two? Number two, uh, it's The Cybermen oh, by yes. Jerry Davis. Yes. Um, now, this one, I mean, I remember this so well. Um, I, I remember once uh, I was off games uh, one afternoon and I didn't have any work to do. So I went to the library, picked up The Cybermen, went there an hour and a half while other people were playing rugby or some such thing. And I sat there and I read through The Cybermen. 
And then at the end, people say, what, have you finished that book? Yeah, I finished it, yeah. And they just could not believe that I could have finished it. And I was like, well, of course I finished it. It's, it's Doctor Who and the Cybermen. I've read it a million times. Um, and it was it's one of those. I could just sort of power through it because it was always so um, enjoyable to read. And familiar as well, I guess. Oh, it's very familiar once yeah, you've read it a million times. Yeah, but it, there's a reason why, you know. It, yeah. It's a... Um, I mean, it's it's... <laughs> It's not the moon base. It's its own Thank thing. Thank goodness. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't dislike the moon base, but then I've never seen the moon base in its entirety. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, but the Cybermen is... Um, I mean, I, I nearly put that at number one. Well, speaking of which, then, we ought to move on and find out what it is. I'm going to guess. Oh, go on, then. Well, I'm going to try and guess. I've got, oh, I've got two titles in mind. I'll throw them both out, and then you'll tell me it's something else entirely. Go on, then. Okay, it's either oh, it's going to either be the Auton Invasion or Battlefield. <laughs> I can see why you'd guess Battlefield. It's neither of those things. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. But did you spot which writer I haven't mentioned yet? Well, uh, Terence Diggs. I'm going to read you an extract from this book. Okay. And it's one I've actually mentioned already on the podcast. Oh, okay. The spaceport of Capital City on the planet called Interminor was baking in the heat of the planet's twin suns. It was a busy, colourful scene as the massive cargo rockets loaded and unloaded in their separate bays. Ground cars and cargo trains scurried to and fro like ants at the feet of the towering metal mountains of the great space rockets. Cursing and sweating, the functionaries worked steadily away, loading and unloading the cargo. Well, I should have guessed that, shouldn't I, really? <laughs> it's Carnival of Monsters. I mean, that's the first paragraph of pages 10 and 11, which is two whole pages of description and um, the political situation on Intominor and President Zarb and meeting the officials and the functionaries uh, and the caste system. Um, and I just noted in your podcast last week as we speak how often <laughs> terence dix was uh talked as of someone who just does he said she said and i think firstly he doesn't just do that because he does fantastic stuff like that as well there's some great description in carnival of monsters there's some great characterization um but also as i think he said in the past the whole point was let's get this story down on the page yes and all those terence dix books um i credit with, I mean, okay, so now I'm, I write now, but I'm also a teacher. I teach English, um, I, and I credit Terence Dix in particular and the target range in general with, with that. You know, yeah, that yeah. You know, these books made me who I am today, um, and Carnival Monsters was the first one, and it's still a bloody good one. Yeah, yeah. I should, I should point out, and I probably should have pointed this out at the time, when we were doing that... Talking about the Target books and talking about the Terence Dix ones, I should have made it absolutely clear that the he said, she said thing was not a criticism. <laughs> because, but I'll tell you for why. In the, okay, in the early books, the Auton Invasion and while Malcolm Hulk's doing his books, Terence Dix has got time to put in loads of the kind of stuff that, that you know, Malcolm Hulk and everybody else is as well. Yeah. But then, as, as the number of books that Terence Dix writes increases then so the amount of extra stuff he puts in goes down. And I think Carnival of Monsters appears in that middle period. 
the same yeah. time as roughly Pyramids of Mars and The Deadly Assassin and things like that, where the amount of extra description that's going in is on the way down. And then by the time you get to Robots of Death and Image of the Fendal and, you know, the ones that came after that for the next three or four years, it almost literally is he said, she said. I love the- Robots of Death, the book, though. Yeah, because it tells the story, and it's such a great story. Image of the Fendal yeah. once in, Image of the Fendal once got me an A at GCSE English. Oh, really? Go on. I'll, prob- I'll probably end up telling that story in a in a book we'll talk about in a minute. Okay, um, so we but, shan't tell uh, it I've, here. But yeah, I've, I've got stories for so many of these books, and we haven't got time on the podcast for all of them, and it would bore everyone if I told them all every anyway. But um, but yeah, all of those books that you just even the latest Terence Dix books. Yeah, I think. Didn't he write Space Pirates? Yeah, I was going to say, he gets that much better That was the very again. latest one. Even yeah. by that stage, it's still, you know, I would rather read the Space Pirates than um, than listen to the audio of the Space Pirates. Yeah, yeah. Well, he get by the end, when he's just doing maybe one a year or a couple a year, he's got a bit more time again, hasn't he? Yeah. I think but, it's yeah, that... I like Terrence Dukes. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, this is what I was going to go on and say. Even when he's literally putting the script on the page... That's all you needed when you were that age. Yeah. You just wanted to be able to follow the story, something that you'd seen on telly once and that had otherwise disappeared. Yep. And, you, and if you hadn't seen it, which in many cases, of course, I hadn't. Yeah. Um, it, he gave me just enough to engage my own imagination. Exactly. Right. Then you've kind of sort of segued us nicely <laughs> into the other topic of conversation. But in order to get to the topic of conversation... Let's go back to the start of it, because you, well, the very first You and Who book, which I got off the ground, I think, at the end of 2010. Yeah. And you got involved quite early. Do you remember how you heard about it? It must have been really lucky, because I don't hang out on Doctor Who forums. Uh, At the time, I wouldn't have been a member of many, if any, groups and things on Facebook or anything. And then somehow I saw a post that you had written um, just advertising this book, saying that there was an opportunity to send in um, personal memories about about Doctor Who and yourself, you and who. Um, and so I saw that. I thought that sounds interesting. And then somehow ended up sending you a, a love letter to Battlefield. Exactly. And you absolutely nailed the concept as well. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you really kind of <clears throat> understood what I was looking for. And most of the people in that, you know, most of the people who've written for you and who have done as well, you yeah. know, there are very few people who've written something where I'm scratching my head thinking, how the hell did you come up with an essay like this, given what it said on the post that you were replying to? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Most people understood what it meant. But you really got it. And you wrote this lovely essay about Battlefield. And you were so enthused about it that what happened next? Well, I, I think I kept nagging you. I kept coming in and going, hi, what's happening, JR? What's, what's the latest in the book <laughs> sort of thing? Um, and, and so then you came back to me with, uh, well, I'm planning on doing some more books. Um, would you like to get involved on the editorial side? Uh, and so the next thing that happened was you and who contact has been made. And originally that was supposed to be the third well, you know, when you come up with a book, you always, in the back of your mind, have an idea about what's going to happen next and what's going to happen after that. And yeah. the idea in my head was that Contact Has Been Made would be the third one. Yeah. Because I was assuming, starting in 2010, that we wouldn't get to 2013 before there'd be a third book. Yeah. And then, of course, we lost that year due to the 
you know, issues with the publication of the first yeah. one. So this you contact has been made became the second one and the second one got dropped and merged in with the first one. So there we were. We did every Doctor Who story and I did the old series and you did the new series. How was that? Well, we split it into two volumes as well. Yeah, we? yeah. So originally it was going to be one book and then we split it into two. So yeah, contact has been made volume two which was my one that was really enjoyable to do though it was it was great getting these essays in and it, it really felt like a privilege to suddenly something pinged into my phone or on my laptop and I'd have this new essay to about I don't know midnight or about whatever um the Christmas invasion you know to read um and someone's personal history someone's take on it um and then just sort of putting in shape and doing my work on it. But that was really, that was a really sort of positive time. And I really enjoyed adding my own bits as well and writing little introductions to the various sections. And, uh, and yeah, so that came, but I mean, th- both those books, I think really still stand up as you know something worth reading. I think, yeah. I, well, I mean, as an editor of these and, you know, with this having sort of been my idea in the first place, it feels a bit like I'm self, self-congratulating self to say so. But <laughs> I think those two books, which you can, of course, now buy all together in a single volume. Yes. Which we added extra yeah. material to at the time. Oh, that's well. right, yeah, because originally it went up to the start of 2013, so we added in the rest of the 50th anniversary year. Yeah. I think, as a history of Doctor Who... And this is the history of Doctor Who as from the viewer's perspective, as opposed to the making of perspective. I think it's just an absolutely lovely story that spans 50 years in a really personal and nostalgic way with essays that really, even if you don't necessarily, even if you haven't necessarily done or lived through the things that people are talking about, there's always something in those essays that people will recognise in themselves, isn't there, basically? Yeah, and then there's, I don't think there's another book like it. No, I don't think there really is. There have been several books that have had similar sorts of themes, but I don't think there's anything that's come close to being that personal. No. No. So, after that, I mean, you've also been involved in most of the other, you know, books on, well, the in the You and Who series as well. The next thing that came up after that was John Davis did... Um, oh, Blake's Heaven. Blake's Heaven, yeah. Yes. You wrote an essay for that, did you not? Yeah, I wrote about Pressure Point. Pressure Point. Was, I love Pressure Point. Is it a good episode, though? Oh, Pressure Point's a great episode. It's <laughs> it's brilliant. Uh, well, I wrote about it, but it's. Uh, I, I've <laughs> always thought it was a defining episode, um, particularly in the character of Blake, um, and and also I've always. I, don't, I know it's not popular to say, but I've always liked the second version of Travis. <laughs> Oh really? Yes, he, I find him amusing, uh, uh, and he's just—it's just, it, it's just uh, anytime he's on screen, he just uh, makes me chuckle. Um, so no, there's a lot to love in that episode. Um, yeah, so that's what I—that's what I contributed to that. What, what did you write about? I did not. You did not? No, I'm not. A, I'm not the world's biggest Blake Seven fan. I mean, I have them all on DVD, and obviously I've seen them all—you know—yeah, on broadcast and since, but. Not the biggest Blake 7 fan. And actually, that was a book that landed in my lap, as it were. Oh, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, and probably that was the book that, because I knew it was coming up by this point, that was probably the book that was responsible for me starting watching books. Yeah. And I suppose I'd better explain that, because I don't think I've ever really talked about it on the podcast. So 
So the You and Who books had gone out of print. And they'd only been with a, you know, a small independent publisher in the first place. And the thing about, you know, independent publishers of that size is you have a certain issue about what you keep in print, what you can afford to keep in print, and how much stock you can keep around the place. So the You and Who books had gone out of print and Milk was sort of umming and ahhing about, oh, we don't know whether we should bring them back into print or just let them go. And I said, look, I've been thinking about this for a while and this Blake's Heaven is coming up, which was originally supposed to be elsewhere and then it didn't have a home and then I said to John Davis who was the editor of it I'll give it a home and that was what cemented the start of watching books I said look it's the modern day and age you can self-publish on CreateSpace these days or on Lulu or on a bunch of other platforms and while the book you get isn't a hundred percent of the quality you'd get if it had actually been to a printer's, you know, professionally like that. It's not so very far off that people would be embarrassed about having it on their shelves. Plus, if you do it like that, it means you get to keep it in print, sort of, you know, in perpetuity, basically. And you get to have it in print in a number of markets around the world. So I just thought what I'll do is I'll start a website where, because all these books are going to have different editors' names on their spines... So if people were going to be looking them up on Amazon or anywhere, they weren't going to find all the books just by typing in the name of the editor. And um, given that Blake's Heaven was going to have a different title, you couldn't type in You and Who either? No, so that, said, it would, that wouldn't have worked. No. so I You said, and Who, Blake, no. Exactly. So I said, I'm going to have to have a website, and I'll keep a website, and on the website, the website will basically be a sort of window into where all these books are and what they're called. And who's responsible for them. So I thought it needed a name. I called it Watching Books. And since then, I started with the reprints of the You and Who books. Then Blake's Heaven came out. And then the rest is history. There's been uh, one further book since then. There's three on the go at the moment. And there's going to be a fourth one a few weeks after this podcast goes out. In fact, very soon after this podcast goes out, there's going to be a fourth one. I think we should spend a couple of minutes on each just to say what they are. Yep, good idea. But You and Who Else was the third one that I did, which was where I took the idea from Contact Has Been Made of doing each Doctor Who story and said, right, instead of doing each story of something, I said, let's do each programme of British telefantasy going right back as far as Quatermass and coming right up to date with, uh, you know, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. So basically, You and Who Else is a complete history of British telefantasy, written in exactly the same way as You and Who Contact has been made, was where each essay is, each television programme has a single essay, or sometimes two with a foreign perspective, by different people who've watched these programmes over the years, and are basically talking about the experience of watching the programmes rather than just writing reviews of the programmes. And your contribution to that book was? Knights of God. Which is? Which was a uh, 1980s uh, s- Sunday serial with uh, Patrick Troughton and Gareth Thomas, amongst other people. Oh, and John Woodvine, who is fantastic in it. Oh, John um, Woodvine's always great. Yeah. And I, it's probably one of the lesser known titles. But I'm just, that's the thing that um, you and who else taught me is how little I actually know about British telefantasy. Because um, there are so many series or serials or one-offs in there that... I've never seen and in some cases never heard of. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a really sort of valuable one that to 
you know, it, it could be a shopping list for the rest of your life. Kind of. Oh, absolutely. Do you know what I did on that book? I must have spent something like 25% of the time editing it on Wikipedia and IMDb, looking people up, looking things up. Yes. Yeah. Of the, because as the editor, the got it right. yeah, even if you've not seen the programme, as the editor, you can't just take the author's word for it. You've got to check everything out. Oh, and gosh, you need, yeah. yeah. And you need to kind of understand what the programme is as well, just to make sure that as you... Because as you... I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous, but a simple sentence on the page might not necessarily add up in your head unless you know exactly what they're talking about in terms of the programme itself. And so what you don't want to do is accidentally change somebody's sentence because you don't think it makes any sense, if it actually makes sense in the context of the programme they're talking about. Yeah. So I didn't want to make any of those kinds of errors. So, you know, I was reading entire Wikipedia entries for programs that I'd never seen just so that I could get the single sentence in the middle of somebody's paragraph, in the middle of somebody's essay, right and not accidentally edit it incorrectly. That's probably one of the harder books we've done, really. Yeah, but I mean, I'm actually proud of that as an achievement, I think. Yeah. It's a lovely thing. (laughs) So at the moment, on the go, well... There are a couple of other books. John Davis has currently got um, You and Who's Company on the go, which is a book of um, essays about relationships through the prism of Doctor Who. I suppose the sort of gist of it is if you as a child are watching the programme with a parent or if you as a parent are watching the programme with a child or if you met your spouse or lover through a love of Doctor Who, or if when you were a child you had a particular best friend and your friendship was built around a sort of mutual love of Doctor Who, all of these things, any of these things, because of the nature of Doctor Who being about your personal history as much as it is about the programme, this book is essentially a book about people's relationships as sort of seen through the sort of prism of the television program so it's a book really about rather than being like you and who contact was has been made was a book about the experience of watching the program this is more about the people who watch the program rather than the program itself or rather than the watching of it yeah i think that'll be a really uh, a really interesting one to read it'll be really um probably very warm and fuzzy in places well, I've seen a couple of the essays that'll be in there, and they're gorgeous, but one of them is an absolute knockout essay. Oh, great. But I'm not going to say who it is, because he hasn't submitted his final draft of it yet, so I don't want to jinx it. <laughs> but maybe by the time this podcast comes out, he will have, so maybe, maybe. I'll put in a little Easter egg and name name him. Um, also is, um, oh, James Gent and John Arnold are doing Me and the Starman. Yeah. Because when David Bowie died, one of the immediate suggestions somebody made was, you you guys should do a book about Bowie. Sort Which, of... again, is a departure for the range. Yeah, but I mean, it fits perfectly, really. Mm. It doesn't need to be television. It doesn't need to be science fiction. And let's face it, David Bowie's not a million miles away from science fiction anyway, is he? <laughs> well, not in, he's not even one mile away. <laughs> no, quite. But I mean... When when the suggestion was made, my first thought was, well, it's too soon, isn't it? And then I thought, no, do you know what? There was such an outpouring of love immediately afterwards, and there were so many people looking for 
a sort of escape valve, a sort of, you know, somewhere to sort of, you know, let their emotions out about it. And actually, I think for some of those people, being able to sit down and write about it for a book was probably a great way of letting off a bit of the pressure. And it hasn't gone anywhere. I keep seeing uh, people suggesting that the reason that 2016 has gone to hell is because David Bowie's not here to look after us anymore. So yeah. you know, people are still thinking about him, even this far down in the year. They're never going to stop. But no. yeah, I mean, this year, it's been a bad year anyway, but that's always going to be remembered as the first major, major thing. Yeah, that started it. <clears throat> then, of course, Jessica Burge and Anthony Burke are doing a similar book on Douglas Adams. UN42. UN42, that's the one. Again, that was they came to me and said, you know, we've thought of an idea for you and who, for the you and who range. And, you know, when people come to you and say, you've thought of an idea for something, until you know what that idea is, your first thought is going to be, oh, if it's not any good, I'm going to have to say no <laughs> politely. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the position you're in now. <laughs> but they said Douglas Adams, and instantly they said it. I thought, oh, of course. It's extraordinary, actually, how many things there are to write essays about given yeah. how notoriously bad he was at actually producing any content. He didn't like finishing things, and that's no. a fact. <laughs> and yet, you know, you have a look at how they're doing on that book, and there's just so many different possibilities. Absolutely, yeah. And all three of those books, actually, even though some of them have sort of passed their um, their deadlines, they're still going, they're still in the editing process. Yep. And so they will still accept things if you email the, you know, go to the you and who, um, website, which is you and who dot weebly dot com. That sounds right. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Or you'll find it or else find me on Twitter or Facebook and ask or whatever. And I'll provide a link. Those books are still ongoing. If you think you're the kind of person who has it in you to write an essay on one of the subjects that would have fit into one of those three books, chances are those guys will still want it. So get in touch and see what they've got to say about it. And the same is also true for you, although yours is probably further along the road than any of those three, I should think, at being complete. And your book is... You on Target. And so what is the conceit behind You on Target? Essentially, it's the idea that you could do, contact has been made with Target books, um, that just as we can all, well, those of us who feel that we can, can think of a particular story and tell uh, our own anecdote about our life when we watch that on television, um, or whatever the essay might have been, we can do the same for individual Target books. Um, and a lot of the essays that I'm reading are, of course, really, it's an essay about your experience with the whole target range, um, but narrowing in on a particular book, which might be the first book you read, it might be the best, it might be a particular one that uh, stood out for some different reason. Uh, there's a good variety coming through. And uh, you, actually, were the first person I said politely no to, weren't you? <laughs> yeah. But I didn't really take that, no. No, you didn't. In fact, you kept badgering me for months and months and months. Yes. So, what about this? What about this, uh, JR? What about this? You better explain (laughs) for the benefit of people listening. Go on. Well, I think you basically... I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think you basically felt that we wouldn't get enough contributors. That that everyone would want to write about... The same the books, basically. And uh, the Daleks and the Cybermen, and that nobody would want to 
write about Underworld and the Robots of Death and Time and the Rani. And was I right? You were wrong. Oh. <laughs> we have had a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, contributors. We haven't got every single book covered as yet, but there is a good spread across the whole history of Target. There's a couple even of those big early ones that are yet to be snapped up, um, whereas there are some later, more inconsequential ones that were snapped up really early. Yeah, um, anybody listening to this should get straight to the website and have a look at what's still available. If they think there's any possibility, they might want to write about these things because time is running short, but yeah. there is still time there. So if there's anything that's not been snapped up yet, this could be a chance to do it. Yeah, I think if at this stage we're still happy to get new people uh, writing new essays about uh, some of these books, particularly some of the more important ones in the range, I think. Um, but then we will, in one way or another, manage to cover them all even you know some of them might have uh shorter entries and sort of uh, more uh lighter anecdotes but i think it'll be good to have covered it all um i think it's I good think to have a really... nice mixture as well actually yeah it will it'll, it'll that'll help to uh, break it up a bit um and yeah it's so far reading really interestingly um and it's a nice little love letter to the target range and that will be out from watching books, of course, once it's finished. Right, there's no... I'm not pushing you here, but do you have any kind of idea about when it might be done? <laughs> I'm not pushing you. It's done when it's done, as far as I'm concerned, it and it'll nice. come out when it's ready. It would be nice if it was done, um, if it could be out sort of the end of this year, wouldn't it? But um, we will. Uh, I will be keeping you posted, Mr. Publisher, uh, <laughs> about that. Um, but yeah, I'm certainly hoping that it won't go on longer than that. But I suppose in part that depends on when we get the last of the essays coming in. That's true. And it's got to be said, editing these books is a lot of work. It does take time. You're talking about 500 pages, maybe. And as an yeah. editor, you have to. And I, I, you know, reading back through you and who else, there are so many typos and things that I thought, how the hell did I miss that? Nearly every page, there's something I thought, how on earth did I miss that? You've got to go through sentence by sentence. Yeah. To make Absolutely. sure it reads okay, as well as that grammatically and, you know, in terms of the punctuation and everything else, you know, it's all pretty correct. You are going to miss stuff. There's no question of it. But you do your best and you just try and make it a book that actually reads from cover to cover without any sort of glaring bits where you're sort of halfway through a sentence thinking, OK, what's going on here? That's our job, isn't it? Yes. And it's it's good. It's going to be really good. It's a, These books are lovely to do, actually, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. So you on target. That'll be out hopefully before the end of this year. And when it, yeah, and when it is out, it's going to be a gorgeous book, I think. I think that's going to be a popular one, in spite of my earlier reservations. <laughs> well, Chris, thanks for coming on and sharing a bunch of stuff about the Target books. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, no problem. I'm surprised it's taken this long to get you on, but <laughs> there you go. I suppose that's just one of those things. It's never come up so far. Yeah, well, and, you know where I am. And this was the perfect opportunity to do it. It was. Right, um, next week then, I haven't a clue what's going to be happening, so I'm not going to predict it. But until then, I was JR and he was Chris. Yes, I was. And we'll speak again soon. Bye. Bye.